InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. It may not always feel like it, but Americans now have more free time than ever before. And the way we're using that time is changing quickly. InfoTrack's Taryn McCall is here with the story. Taryn? Thanks, Chris. We're joined by Clay Shirky, internet guru and author of a book called Cognitive Surplus. Your discussion of what we do with our spare time is pretty interesting, that during the last half of the 1900s, the majority of our leisure time was spent watching television. But tell us how that is changing now. Well, one of the things we're seeing among groups of people who are highly connected to the Internet, have broadband access, etc., is a shift away from pure consumption. Instead of television being really the kind of primary and, and in some cases, sole sort of consumptive activity in the media environment, people are starting to do things that are also productive, generous, social. We still like to consume, but it turns out we can now see that we also like to produce and we like to share. So you see people pooling their resources to do anything from sharing cute pictures of cats, the silly lolcat stuff, all the way up to collaboratively creating software, working together on hard political problems, really just an upwelling of kinds of participation we didn't see in the media landscape of the 20th century, in part because we didn't have the tools that provided us those opportunities. Your theory is that this extra time spent online will be for the common good. Tell us about that, because a lot of online time is spent on things that are not very productive. It may be social, but not necessarily productive. That's certainly right, and my theory isn't that we somehow automatically get an improvement in the common good. The two things I think I would observe are that doing something is better than doing nothing. So already someone who is even doing something, you know, kind of silly and throwaway, you know, making a funny video and uploading it to YouTube, is nevertheless more active than someone just watching the 25th hour of TV that week. But even more than that, we are seeing people voluntarily coming together and trying to do things in ways that are positive, not just for the participants, but for society as a whole. One of the examples is Patients Like Me, a website that is aggregating patient data in a way that's designed to improve medical research. They're actually having to convince the participants to share a lot of data about themselves, the kind of data people would never share. And the utility to researchers of having enormous groups of citizens, all of whom suffer from the same disease in the same way and have identified themselves, will make research just much, much faster and much more efficient and hopefully more effective. So in that case, you've got people online who are participating in ways that are really about changing the culture we live in, not just exchanging sort of silly pictures of cats. Let's talk for a moment about young people who've grown up in this online world. Much of their social interaction is conducted online as opposed to in person, and some critics say that's not good. What do you think? In terms of living their social lives online, though, what's actually quite interesting is it looks to the older generation like this is a wholesale abandonment of face-to-face interaction. But actually, one of the great surprises of the last 10 or 15 years is the reintroduction of face-to-face time. In fact, one of the things that went hand-in-hand with television being the majority use of free time is that we spent a lot of time at home by ourselves. And when you look at the way people are using tools like Facebook and Twitter and so forth, they're not just using them to socialize with one another on the Internet. They're actually using them to coordinate real-world meetings. 
So it has been commonplace since the web went mainstream in the mid-90s to predict that any minute now cities were going to start emptying out as people abandoned face-to-face interaction in favor of virtual interaction. And in fact, in that same period, exactly the opposite thing has happened, which is to say that people have flocked to cities and they're increasingly using these tools to arrange more face-to-face interaction in exactly the same way that the telephone could be something where you have a conversation with someone for an hour and don't see them. The Internet is, for young people, increasingly being used as a way to organize real life rather than as an alternative for it. Our guest today is Clay Shirky, Internet guru and author of a book called Cognitive Surplus. One of the things you write about is that people should not be too concerned about information overload. Explain that to us. Well, it's not so much that we shouldn't be concerned about it as that we shouldn't call it information overload. Information overload it is the normal case of modern life, and by modern, I really mean since the 1600s. Once publishing had worked its magic and there were more books available than the average literate citizen could read in a lifetime, that was information overload, right? You had to decide which books to read and, of course, which books not to read. And so we've needed ways to manage the abundance of information for the last half a millennium. What's happened now isn't that there's suddenly more information. There's been more information every year of the modern world. What's happened now is that the filters we used to rely on, the professional filters for what to read and what not to read, have broken. So in my framing, the problem we're dealing with is not information overload, but filter failure. And the issue of the age isn't to figure out how we should view this abundance of information we now have access to. We've always benefited from abundance of information. The question really now is, what kinds of filters do we need in place to manage this particular sort of turn of that screw? And in many cases, the filters we need are social. And in many cases, the filters we're turning to are social. The idea of looking at what your colleagues at work or other people in your department and a university or what your friends at home are reading or watching or listening to becomes a way to restore some order out of the chaos. And it is, I think, that possibility, the possibility of looking to society to help us with this stuff, rather than worrying about information overload per se, that we ought to be thinking about. Let's put your prediction hat on. Tell us some of the benefits you foresee as a result of this cognitive surplus in the next 10 or 20 years. Well, the one I think is going to come true is that the number of places where there is information that society knows but no one person in society knows, we're going to be much better at surfacing that information. One is patients like me where patients are sharing their data and trying, as I said, to affect medical research. I think we're going to see that over and over again. The more speculative change is that the expectation of freedom of speech The expectation that people will be able to participate in the conversation that concerns them is going to spread worldwide in something like the way the idea of democracy spread between the 1950s and the 1990s. And it is my hope that the kind of struggle we're seeing right now in Iran or in Belarus or in China or in Myanmar will end with those populations much more able to join the global conversation than they currently are. This whole wave of technology is also changing the nation's job environment. If you were giving advice to a young person just starting out, what would you say? Colleges often gave this advice about sort of the informational interview, just go have coffee with someone, go you know, try and find out what's going on. The ability to understand the main currents of 
thought or interest or work in any profession, whether it's pro football or real estate law, is so much higher now that if I were a young person just starting out, I would spend a lot of time just looking at the field or fields I was interested in and then just striking up email conversations or writing people and saying, I like your work, I'm interested in what you do, can I ask you a couple of questions about it? You know, the answer will often be no, people are busy, but it will be yes, often enough. And I think that a young person who leaves college or just sets out in the world from wherever with some sense of what the conversation already is in their chosen field and who the players or participants are, what the big open questions are, would be doing so much better. That ability to really take on a sense of I'm entering the game at this state of play for you know whatever field I'm interested in is such an opportunity for young people and it's one that I don't think enough of them understand or take advantage of. Clay Shirky, internet guru and author of a book called Cognitive Surplus. Clay, do you have a website where people can learn more? Sure. Shirky.com slash weblog is where I've been writing. And, uh, of course, the book is also on sale on Amazon. Well, thanks for spending time with us. Very good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Taryn McCall for InfoTrack. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.